This episode is sponsored by NOAA, an app I listen to regularly. The first 100 people to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash media tribe will get a week free to listen to articles from The Economist, Bloomberg and The Financial Times plus 50% off. Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. And then we got to Houston and I got into a taxi to get to the CBI and I got in the back of the taxi and there's sitting Boris Johnson, the current prime minister. And he, he basically wanted to know who I was. And, and uh, I remember him saying to me when I told him what I was there for, he just looked at me and he said, doing a job on Hague, are you? My guest this week is editor-in-chief of Wired UK, Greg Williams. Greg Williams, welcome to the Media Tribe. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. You're most welcome. It's lovely to connect, Greg. We have a mutual friend in common, a very awesome Irish woman, Margarete. So I'm so thrilled she put us in touch and recommended you for the podcast. Shout out to Margareta. She's she's awesome. So Greg, do you want to kickstart our conversation and tell our audience how you started off in journalism and became the editor-in-chief of Wired UK? You know, I didn't know anyone in journalism growing up. I certainly didn't have any kind of connections in the industry. And um, I always knew I kind of wanted to write. And the idea of journalism definitely appealed to me. And I remember I was working one summer as a painter and decorator or an order picker. And um, the order picking job was at night and doing bits of paint and decorating during the day. And I sent around, I think it was around 20, 24 letters out to various publications to the BBC to you know all the national newspapers and even on radio local radio stations and um, these are all typewritten at the time that I didn't have a word processor or anything like that and I didn't get a single response except from Radio Chilton up in Luton bless them who, who interviewed me uh, nothing came of it but at least it was nice to know that you know the letters had arrived and it, it did make me realize that this is going to be tough right it's, it is tough for, for, for young people without any kind of connection um, to break in then I kind of went off to uni and you know applied for all the things you're supposed to apply for the postgraduate schemes nothing came of that and then I thought right you know what I'm going to go off and write the, a, a great novel I disappeared off to Paris where I taught uh, English for a few months and then I saw an advert for an editorial assistant for a, a magazine called Blitz, which is no longer with us. Um, it was a kind of like a, a, what they called at the time, a style title, much like The Face. And I kind of came back to London, interviewed and was fortunate enough to get the job and then really went from there. And I, I, I learned that uh, a few years later that Esquire was launching in the UK. And at the time, I was you know very, very influenced by all that you know, new new journalism and gay Talese and those kinds of um, those kinds of writers, and they'd all worked for Esquire at the time. So I thought, you know what, that's what I really want. I was interviewed by by a guy called uh, Lee Eisenberg, who at the time had been 
um, the editor in chief of, of, of Esquire in the uh, the eighties and you know, and nineties, uh, actually late eighties, early nineties, I guess. You know, really was kind of quite a, a significant figure in New York publishing at that time, and uh, you know was just delighted to get the job. And then from there, climb, climbed up the ladder, went to a, a title called Arena. Uh, again, RIP. I seem to have this effect on on titles, <laughs> uh, which was kind of like a, you know again a high end sort of like men's title, lots of long form writing, but also kind of style and things like that after that we ended up in new york where i uh worked for a while for a guy called felix dennis lots of good stories there and then worked at, ended up at condé nast where i worked at a title called details and then heard that there was a t- an opportunity at, at wired that was launching in the uk and i was really intrigued by Wired because it seemed to me to be a title with real uh, opportunity and room to grow it seemed to be really examining the way in which the world was changing and so again applied and uh, was fortunate enough to get uh, an interview and, and got the job so became deputy there was uh, did that for seven years and, uh, and then i've been editor-in-chief for the uk edition for just over four years now so um yeah potted history Amazing. Well, it's a great story because there was a lot of rejection in there, Greg, and um, a lot of RIP uh, stories in there with with magazines. I mean, you work in the publishing industry. It is certainly an industry that has taken a battering over the years. And in particular, last year gone by. I'm I'm so glad we can now say last year, by the way, about 2020. But I'd like to point out that, um, I mean, I've read that Wired under your leadership had revenue growth in 2020, which is kind of unheard of. Do you want to tell us about your secret sauce? Well, I think we diversified very, very early. So we started working, obviously, we, we, we were thinking very sort of like clearly about there being a digital future from day one. But then we started thinking about, okay, where else can we take this brand? What are the opportunities? And at the time, you know, events wasn't something that all publishers thought about. There, there were there were kind of B2B events that one one would see, but there wasn't a kind of like a, 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 a consumer title like Wired that really was thinking about, okay, how do you start putting on live events and how can you create assets around that and how can you leverage those? So we moved into events pretty early and then we've really started thinking about okay what else can we do with this brand how can we reach audiences in new ways uh, and what do they want from us and so you know we we've launched um you know other other titles such as our, our annual trends guide now which has become sort of something that has been you know a, a huge success we have a consulting uh, business uh, in which we uh, work with large organizations to help them prepare for the future. We have uh, a, a newsletter business that we're just establishing at the moment. Obviously, you know, podcasts, videos. It's sort of like it's like, sort of slightly tried to say, yeah, we, we've been thinking about this for a long time, but we, we have. We put it into practice fairly early. We've done things like, you know, affiliate marketing. I think we've done it in a way that was really integral to the brand. Uh, meaning like we're not just trying to sort of get to the top of the rankings with everything, but we're actually trying to think about how do we offer authority and integrity and, and real quality to what we do. So the the reviews will only ever be reviews that we feel editorially are absolutely, you know, ones that we stand behind. doesn't matter whatever, you know, what commercial sort of considerations there are, um, you know, within the business. We want to make sure that the readers are the number one priority for, for everything we do. So, yeah, I guess I guess a way of summing it up would be just to think, okay, we're thinking about the audiences, we're thinking about where they are, and we're thinking about how we can develop new opportunities around that that are, you know, really, really natural things for us to do. And having that integrity and quality. So 
our events, we probably people within the business wouldn't like probably like me to say this, but we probably spend you know a, a lot more money than we need to in some ways on things like production and food and those kinds of areas. So I think just adding all those different layers on, you know, so they're mixing with their peers, they're mixing with you know some of the smartest people in their fields. They're also having a good time in a nice place with a, a nice lunchbox. I know it sounds silly, but I think just having a real sense of the entire process from being served, you know, a, a maybe a, a, an advert for that event to actually, you know, leaving it feels like a great experience and they've got real value from it. Well, that's it. It's it's the UX you're talking about there. But to, for our audience, I, I'm assuming everybody will know what Wired magazine is. I'm hoping they don't think it's a gadget magazine because it's so far removed from that, I would say. And, you know, I would compare it to the likes of Bloomberg, you know, The Economist now and other publications because you guys really, really you know, hit on big, big topics. Like you're looking at like AI and blockchain and fintech and, you know, space and in a long form formats as well. And so you really kind of go into big, big journalism. Was your main job when you left the deputy editorship in 2017, was it to kind of merge print and digital? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And I should have probably, you know, finished my previous answer by saying that, look, everything has to be underpinned by great journalism right so quality journalism and um you know content that really does intrigue and surprise and entertain and educate people and yeah so when i first took the job it, we we had division between print and digital and my first job was to make sure that everyone worked across all those things all those platforms that we have and i think that the great thing now is if you go onto the editorial floor they will be editors who maybe are, you know, they're, they're, they're commissioning a story for, for their section on the, the digital uh, or, or the print title, maybe. They're writing a story for digital. Uh, they're recording a podcast. They're writing a script for a video. They're also curating a stage for an event. And I think that, you know, a lot of people say, talk about, you know, oh my goodness, I wouldn't come into journalism now. But I think in some ways, Although it's still very challenging and it's still a very challenging, you know, uh, uh, situation, I think, for, for, for many publications, I think there's just so many different ways in which people can tell stories now and the opportunities are enormous. And obviously for many writers, and we see this in the, the, the rise of, of, of uh, newsletters now and Substack and platforms like that, there is a way of reaching audiences in a way that we've never had before. So it really is a very exciting time, I think. And if you can kind of pull all those elements together and make them all feel like they are they have the same voice they have the same perspective and they have the same uh, sensibility that that's good just to answer the sort of first part of your question around you know what wired is uh, you're absolutely right i mean that's certainly the way that i think about it i think of us as you know something you know akin to you know, the economist or bloomberg or, or the ft something like that but i think what the way way I, I would i would sort of you know shape it is to think that look, we're just about how the world is changing so, you know, some people think that, you know, that, that you know, are interested in that hardcore tech. So the AI, the blockchain, those kinds of things, we do cover that. But also, you know, we're very interested in, you know, what it is to be a human being in the era of technology, when technology defines us. So we might have a story on 
people who have become phenomenons on TikTok through dancing and what that says about the culture and what, you know, that, that happened during COVID and how that became the phenomenon during COVID. Uh, we might have a story on, you know, we do this month on mRNA vaccines and what that means moving forward for other kind of uh, treatments and vaccination for other serious conditions uh, such as HIV. Uh, this is a whole new platform. It's not just something that's going to help us with uh, COVID uh, vaccination. I think it's just a way of looking forward. And I think that technology, whether that's, you know, we're looking at policy around regulation or taxation from a business perspective, or whether we're looking at it from cult, uh, from a cultural perspective and the way that people are telling stories now using digital, it, it is the central way or, or the kind of like the, the core way now that the world is, is being shaped. Well, that, it's, it's something that struck me when I did read that you had revenue growth last year. And I wondered if there was something in the fact that what you do is give people a window into the future at Wired. And that's what we desperately craved last year. Just some level of what the hell is going to happen in the next few months, in the next few years. Just yeah. we all kind of look towards experts and, and really craved that level of information and that level of journalism. So, so, so that's why Wired is a wonderful public publication under the Condé Nast brand. Next question, Greg, kind of the bigger part of the interview, but is there a story or maybe it's a project at Wired that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, so I think that anything that has impact in the world obviously is, is important. So um, our science writer, Matt Reynolds, um, published a story last year that I thought was uh, incredibly impactful. It was around the fact that Amazon was selling publications that uh, advocated the use of uh, certain caustic substances in, 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 for children with autism. When it was published, then Amazon actually removed those titles from sale. Uh, we had another story about YouTube and the way that uh, paedophiles were using uh, uh, timestamps on YouTube on certain videos to to alert each other to material that they uh, might want to view uh, and it, uh, that caused YouTube to uh, to change its policies so I think that that kind of thing can have in, impact in, in in the world I also think that clearly you know our job as any journalist job is to interpret the world right and understand what it's happening why it's happening uh, and to try and, and try on offer a in wide case a perspective on what might happen in the future and I think that you know to your, to your point your earlier point one of the things that I think you know does benefit us is that we are we tend to be quite optimistic so we do think that you know climate change clearly the greatest challenge of our times but with the right sort of you know um government partnerships and the right kind of corporate partnerships, uh, the right level of investment, the right level of, you know, innovation in science and research, and just, you know, global cooperation. It is something that we can kind of, you know, we can get to net zero by 2050. Now, is there a plan yet? Not really. It, you know, we need governments really, and hopefully um, uh, the, the event in Glasgow, uh, COP um, event later in the year will ho hopefully put a, put a sort of a framework around this. But I think that while as a title tends to be curious about the world and excited about the world, and I think that, you know, given, you know, we live in pretty challenging times, it's nice to feel that there is sort of like some some hope out there. That's not to say, by the way, that if we, you know, particularly you know, digitally, if we see people that we feel aren't doing, you know, the right thing, then we will, uh, we will not uh, certainly, you know, pull, pull our punches. Well, what, what I really like about Wired is the fact that, you know, many of your articles, as you kind of alluded to there, offer solutions. Like there is this kind of sense of solution journalism at the end. I mean, one article I recently read was about 
artificial intelligence and the lack of diversity in that sphere. You know, it's dominated, uh, Kel Surprise, by elite white men, Greg. And your article in, in Wired um, talked about a lady, a lady of colour who'd been fired from Google and how problematic that was because the way in which AI is used is, of course, it will be used in the criminal justice system and it will be used in healthcare and all, all, all these other various places where uh, people of colour will absolutely be affected. So it makes no sense to have a, a room full of white men working in in this sphere. Um, so, so I love at the end of that article that you offered. It wasn't you; it was one of your colleagues offered offered up solutions. Um, you know, regulation and workers forming a union. But also, it, it really struck me that you're absolutely not afraid to pull the punches on you know big tech, who arguably you know you're writing about all the time. So you know the big players like IBM, Google, obviously Facebook, and um, Amazon, as you say as well. So that's really integral to your you know your core isn't it yeah and I, I think that we have to you know our job as any journalist is to to call it as it is and to uh you know really examine the world uh in all its flaws and and, and although we are optimistic by nature I, th- I think an area like ai deserves a huge amount of scrutiny um there are incredibly positive things about ai um you know we we weirdly enough wired was responsible for a very positive thing the uh researchers are a deep mind um and uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital came together because of a, a, a Wired article. Uh, Pierce Keane, who's a ophthalmologist at, at, at Moorfields, read a piece about um, uh, uh, DeepMind in Wired, uh, approached them to work on a project, and now they have an amazing kind of uh, project piece of research uh, that allow, allows um, AI to scan uh, retinal scans and look for uh, abnormalities and and that allows people like Pierce to spend a lot more time with um, her, uh, their patients um, but you're right to, to to really question sort of AI and the ethical implications of it uh, certainly inbuilt uh, you know uh, bias against minorities um, I think you know you, you have to also look at areas like you know taxation regulation we're going to see a huge amount of that I think in the in the coming years interestingly uh, China uh, also looking like it's shaping up to sort of take on its so-called you know big tech companies so I, I think that we have to we, we, we've reached a point and I think that maybe you could say that maybe I don't know Five or six years ago, Wired was uh, uh, maybe, uh, I wouldn't use the word breathless, but certainly it was really kind of much more excited about what big tech was up to because it kind of felt like, oh, wow, we're on the verge of something really, really exciting. And I think that probably our view now would be that, look, we need to actually look at what's happening in the world, the negative impacts of, you know, certainly, you know, Facebook's behavior and it's an inability to regulate its own platform. And it's clear that self-regulation doesn't work in Facebook's case. And, you know, as long as it keeps returning shareholder value, you know, for whatever reason, the you know, the, the, the executive group there doesn't seem to really be able to kind of get hold of the, the massive kind of negative impacts of, of, of what's happening on that platform. So, yeah, I think that we have to we have to call these these things out. And, you know, we're not the only ones. You know, there are many, many other publications, both in the tech sphere and, and in um, um, you know other publications that are also uh, calling this out but generally which we, we are we are optimists about the impact that tech can have on the world that does not mean however that we are uh, uh, you know uh, unwilling to call out you know bad behaviors when we see them The Media Tribe podcast is brought to you by Noah an app that helps you know more about news that matters 
Noah is obsessed with quality journalism and lets you listen to important, curated audio articles from world-class publishers like The Independent, Business Insider and many more. Their mission is to help listeners like you understand the big issues, get multiple perspectives and go beyond breaking news. The first 100 Media Tribe listeners to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe will get one week free plus 50% off thereafter. That's newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe, or if it's easier, simply hit the link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to NOAA so far. Not only are you supporting quality journalism, but you're also helping me bring you more Media Tribe episodes like this one. Right, back to Greg. Well, I mean, it's so obvious that big tech companies are increasingly taking on a geopolitical role. That, to me, just feels utterly dangerous. I mean, it is. They've proven it themselves. And, you know, is there a sense at Wired that you're going to tackle this quite differently than than, than what's happened in the past? I mean, after the year we've had? So, yeah, I, I think you're right. Tech's taking on a, a geopolitical role. Clearly, there are different versions of the internet developing. You know, there is kind of like the state run version in in China, which is kind of strange hybrid of, you know, incredible innovation, but but always kind of within the oversight of the state. Then you've got, you know, the the Brussels model, which is a bit more geared towards, you know, uh, protection for for users and data privacy. Then you've kind of got a, you know, the original, I guess, the Silicon Valley version, which is the open platform and everyone has access and no gatekeepers, which are clearly that's that, that that hasn't come about. And then you have kind of, I guess, a, sort of like a DC version, which is a bit more about sort of, you know, the, the rights of, uh, you know, private kind of like IP and uh, attempts to kind of like it's the commercial internet, if you like. And then I guess you could say there is, you know, a Russian version, which is kind of like almost like the spoiler into internet. So it takes this kind of flow of information and it try and tries to, to to impact the world in, you know, in ways that it's it is advantageous to uh, its agenda. And then I think you're also seeing India. So you're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, homegrown companies in India um, really developing very interesting platforms, uh, a huge growth there. And I think that, you know, if you're looking to, to where the, 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 the internet and where there's real opportunity uh, for growth in technology, I think India is going to be the country that uh, I would be really interesting to fo- interested to follow in the in the coming years. Interesting, and I mean, in ter- in a journalism context, uh, do you feel that the future looks quite bright in terms of how our industry will fare with technology? Although I've discussed this on the podcast before, but we have seen so many layoffs from the kind of the digital outlets that promised so much back in the day, and it's it's just so disappointing and especially for the younger journalists coming through when they see this and, and they think yeah. right maybe that isn't the industry I should enter yeah I mean look I think that you've still got to look at sort of titles that have the New York Times was was declared you know DOA just a few years ago I remember kind of reading the stories about the fact that they were leasing office space to you know the uh, the, the Mexican uh, telecoms uh, magnet um, and you know people were saying it's it's over you just look at the amazing growth in, in subscribers and, and and they've done that you know first of all okay they looked at costs and they looked strategically about their business but then they invested enormously in writers and journalists 
And then they thought very differently about like, okay, how do we present our journalism and how do those desks work? So they probably work with audience growth managers. They they work with data visual uh, visualization uh, uh, specialists. And it's, it's a different way of working and it's different from the traditional way of working. Certainly the, the way I kind of like uh, certainly came through. But I think that it's really intriguing now to really think about, okay, here's a great story. How do we want to tell it? Actually, is this probably better as a video or does it work maybe as a podcast episode or could we do something more interesting with the data visualization? It's not always just about, okay, get a reporter to get out there and get some, you know, some, 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 some interviews. And I completely understand your point around the fact that it, it, it is challenging. And that's why all publications now need to be thinking about, okay, um, how do we, you know, really create passionate advocates for our brand and our on um, what we do so you know uh, uh, while there's enormous pressure on all of us i think to uh, you know widen the top of that funnel and get as many people uh, reading and and, and uh, get, get as large an audience as possible watching videos and all that all that stuff that's incredibly important obviously but i think that further down that kind of that that funnel are a group of people who are really passionate about you know the product and what you do and the writers and the storytelling and the various ways in which you do it and you only have to look at sort of like the way that you know the new york times has uh, spun off the crossword it's spun off um uh, its cookery pages as, as 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 very separate entities that you have to subscribe to you look at the enormous growth in the new yorker uh, you know, which is really just double down on, you know, amazing reporting and investigations. And I think that there there is real sense in which, because there is so much content out there, that actually, if you can do stuff that really renovate, uh, re- resonates with people, and it has, you know, as I say, you know, or you'll bang on about integrity, authority and quality, and it's, it has your imprint on it as a brand then I think there is real opportunity. But I think you have to have all those pieces in play. Yeah, well, I think it's going to be really interesting to see in a post-Trump era if the New York Times, if that growth trajectory continues in in, in, in that direction. I hope and I think it will. Um, Last question, Greg, always a bit of crack. And we encourage all of our guests to be very open and, and reveal all the juicy details that have never been revealed before. But is there a crazy bunkers moment um in your career uh, that has happened to you that you'd like to delve into uh well yeah i mean there's been lots of kind of so i started my career i wanted to be like a, a long form sort of like profile writer because i'd read you know people like you know all the obvious people the gator leads and and so I, so I did a lot of that so i've got a lot of those kind of stories that i, I won't divulge because i think they're, they're just they're sort of they're, they're anecdotes anecdotes not stories but the one i was thinking about earlier on today funnily enough was around gosh when would this have been i guess it was sort of like around 96 97 maybe even 98 uh, and william haig became leader of the conservative party and i sort of like watched him um go to the notting hill carnival and he, he wore a baseball cap and he was um trying to really connect with people and he wanted to be a new kind of tory leader you know the tory leader he was a man of the people and, and I, I think actually you know in retrospect he was really trying to modernize uh, the party and anyway i thought great i'd love to spend some some time with him so um his press team sort of seemed to think this is a good idea because i was working at arena at the time and i went up to i went up with him to the cbi conference in in birmingham and um 
you know, first of all, there was all this kind of like Pilar. He was with, I think he was with Sebastian Coe, who was like one of his chief advisors. And I think George Osborne at the time might have been uh, his advisor as well. And there was all this kind of confusion with the tickets and he nearly got kicked out of first class and the ticket collector was, and it was well, the whole thing kind of just turned into this kind of like rather sort of like bad journey. And I was trying to get time with him and we were, me and the photographer were thrown out and sort of sent into, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the regular coaches. And then we got to uh, Houston and I got into a taxi to get to the CBI and I got in the back of the taxi and um, there, there's sitting um, Boris Johnson uh, the current prime minister and he, he and he said you know he basically wanted to know who i was and he said and uh, i remember him saying to me when i told him what i was there for he just looked at me and he said doing a job on hague are you and it was kind of like that that kind of classic sort of like journalist recognition of, of what was what was going on um so got to and obviously he was at the telegraph at the time as a columnist we got to the cbi and hague was going to give the big speech he was the new leader of the conservative party and I remember, I think it was before the speech, yeah, it was before the speech, he's in the green room and well, there's various people there from, you know, um, business. And I remember Bill Morris came in, who at the time was the leader of the Transport and General Workers Union. And Bill Morris is a big, imposing man, tall man. Anyway, so Bill Morris comes comes in and uh, sort of Morris approaches Haig to, Haig to say hello to him. And, and Haig sort of like just takes a step backwards because, you know, Morris is kind of quite an imposing figure. And as he takes a step backwards, he sort of trips over, um, uh, he sort of like falls back into this glass table and kind of cracks this glass table. And uh, I think George Osborne's pulling him out of this table. And it was this very sort of undignified moment. And I, I, I did feel bad for, for, for Haig. And then we, we ended up going back with him and no one knew who he was. So I remember on the platform, people were saying, well, who's that guy? Like, why is there a big entourage around him? And, and then we, we ended up, uh, going back to the House of Commons, and, and I said to him, Look, where are you going tonight? And he said, I'm going to the Mobos, the Music of Black Origin Awards. And it just seemed, seemed like this very unlikely evening for like, a leader of the Conservative Party. And it, to me, that just like reflected like it, it's a real, it, I felt bad for him because it was just this sort of terrible litany of calamities. Uh, but he was also trying to, you know, modernise. He was wanting to go to the Mobos that evening. But as a journalist, you just have to write what you see, right? And I just, it was one of those just gifts. Like all I had to do was write down what had happened that day. And it just ended up being this kind of, you know, really, really enjoyable story to write. I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> I just had to say this happened and that happened. Um, but yeah, I think in retrospect, I think he'll go down as someone who uh, was probably a man before his time. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's brilliant. Um, thank you so much, Greg, for indulging me and taking us through all your brilliant work at Wired and what you guys are up to. And um, we really appreciate it. And um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, at all. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. If you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with a GH or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with the GH. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson. <laughs>